0: Welcome to the Forensic Psychologist Podcast, a place where we discuss the niche practice of forensic psychology. The show episodes will take you on a trek through the intersection of law and human behavior and even some true crime. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Vienna, Forensic Psychologist and Clinical Director at Vienna Psychological Group. And although I am a licensed psychologist, please note that this podcast and information presented on this podcast is for education and informational purposes only and may not be construed as medical, psychiatric, or legal advice. The information on the podcast episodes are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition, nor is it intended to replace any medical or legal advice offered by your physician, treating doctor, or lawyer. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Vienna, your host, and today's episode is going to cover a broad overview of insanity evaluations. I like to think of insanity evaluations as being pretty symbolic to the intersection of law and psychology. They've been around for a really long time. I want to say that it dates back to the early 1800s. It could be before then, but I, I think it's around the 1800s. And it's not a frequently raised defense because it can be difficult to establish. So in order for a defendant to be found not guilty by reason of insanity, they must meet the jurisdiction's definition of legal insanity. And in courts in various jurisdictions will use different rules to determine legal insanity. For example, here in Los Angeles, in our jurisdiction, we use the m rule. In other places, they might use the model penal code test, the Durham rule, or even the irresistible impulse test. Now, I had the amazing pleasure to interview our next guest expert all about insanity evaluations. I interviewed Dr. Michael Collins. So let me tell you a little bit about him and his background, and then we'll jump into the interview. Dr. Michael Collins is the owner and chief neuropsychologist and mental health expert of the Clinical Neuropsychology Center. Dr. Collins has testified over a hundred times as an expert witness and has been court appointed or retained for over a thousand psychological evaluations. So clearly he has a lot of experience. Prior to forming the Clinical Neuropsychology Center, he was the director of psychology at South University and has since that time developed the Boward County Diversion Program. He became a national expert for his work in forensic and neuropsychology, mental health assessment, and risk management. Dr. Collins earned his PhD in clinical neuropsychology from Nova Southeastern University and completed residencies in forensic and neuropsychology. He is a vendor with the state of Florida and performs expert witness evaluations throughout the states. If by chance we left anything out or you have a lingering question, feel free to send me a DM. I'm happy to follow up or even reach out to Dr. Collins. He's also very open to that. You'll find our contact info in the show notes. So without further ado, here's the interview with Dr. Michael Collins. Well, I want to welcome my very special guest today, Dr. Michael Collins. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show and answer a couple questions about the insanity defense. How are you doing today, Michael?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you first and foremost for having me. And I look forward to, you know, having a good discussion on these topics.
0: Yes, I do too. I have a couple side questions that I got sent by students. So I will enter. Leave those into the discussion, but just some basic questions. But let's start off with telling people, telling the listeners how you got started in forensic work. Okay.
1: Well, you know, I can I can tell you that this is a question that I think about a lot of times, and I can tell you it it was definitely not part of uh, the plan for me. I did graduate school at Nova Southeastern, and I was pretty formally trained in neuropsychology uh, throughout. My time in graduate school, where I completed the concentration and uh, practicum requirements you know that were you know part of both the general clinical psychology degree as well as the neuropsychology concentration, and I knew a number of you know my uh, my friends in the program were into forensics, and so I w- you know I had some working knowledge of you know what it, you know what forensics was based on their experience, based on what we had at you nova know, southeastern. But I can definitely tell you it was really never part of the plan for me while I was in graduate school. In fact, it really didn't come into the picture for me probably until I would say, you know, the first time I really got exposed to forensics on any level was really as an intern. And that was because I did an internship with a hospital that had a division of neurology. And within that division, there was a neuropsychology internship where I had placed It just so happened that the internship director had a lot of disability cases, motor vehicle accident cases, and you know, it was it was a good fit for me almost immediately. You know, really just combining the neuropsychological methods with uh, typically one of the comprehensive personality assessments, the record review. It was something that came pretty natural for me throughout the course of internship, and you know, little did I know that when you do. Accident cases like that, that, you know, there can be court proceedings and, you know, all these different, you know, forensic issues that come on it, you know, that, that can um, come into play. And so that was really, you know, the first time I got exposed to forensics on any level. And again, my, my plan was to be a neuropsychologist, to, to work at one of these hospitals, to work with neurologists and just really kind of function like, Most neuropsychologists do get board certified and so on. And, you know, at the time, I was really kind of committed to staying in South Florida. And, you know, I don't think this is just a South Florida problem, but there's just not a lot of good training sites, whether it's the internship or the postdoc level, especially if you're locked into an area. And I was kind of in a situation where, you know, in order to get my hours and to be doing something that I was like reasonably interested in, you know, there there wasn't a neuropsych position. And so I kind of got into doing forensics through doing this, working at the substance abuse facility. And it was a really good fit from day one. It got me out of neuropsych for a little bit for the year, but it really kind of piqued my interest working with these individuals that had recently been released from jail, had serious drug charges, had serious criminal charges. And I just kind of started taking, you know, what I had learned over the years, um, doing neuropsychology and started learning ways that neuropsychology can kind of be applied to more of the, um, the criminal side. Like I said, at an internship, I was able to learn how it applies to the civil side, but that was really the introduction in terms of how it, um, applies to the criminal side. And then from there, uh, you know, I did eventually end up doing a neuropsych residency, so that was great uh, almost immediately after. But once I kind of got cast as being the neuropsychologist that was willing to do the forensic work, and not just the civil forensic work, but the criminal forensic work, that opened up a lot of opportunities. And when you're, when you're young, you're, you're newly licensed, and you're really trying to get out there, you really kind of have to follow what opportunities are there for you. Right, right. And on one hand, you know, I get to be a neuropsychologist and I get to work in a hospital, but it is not the kind of hospital that I actually planned on working in because most of these are state facilities where there's competency issues, safety issues, risk assessment issues, and so on. So that's just kind of a little bit of a, a summary of how, you know, I really went down the path of neuropsychology, which, you know, I believe I've stayed pretty true to, and there's an element of in all my forensic work of neuropsychology, but I got into the civil and criminal range, and it, it, that is just where I am. And it, it's something that I've really enjoyed doing.
0: Yeah, that, that's awesome. I mean, you stumbled into it, but it, it's amazing. I wanted to <laughs> uh, back up really quick because you mentioned working for a substance abuse center. Is that right? At oh, point? what was that? You asked that question again. You mentioned that you worked for a substance abuse center and worked with offenders there. Yes. What kind of forensic work did you do there with those kinds of offenders? Was it treatment-oriented or group therapy or what kind of work did you do there?
1: Oh, you're cutting out. I'm hearing the substance abuse part, but I'm not hearing the actual question.
0: Okay. Can you hear me now better? Yes, now I can. Okay, perfect. (laughs) Sorry about that. I wanted to know what kind of work you did there with the offenders, like what kind of forensic work you did.
1: Well, it was a substance abuse program down here in um, South Florida. And I think it was, for the most part, it was kind of a traditional facility where you had your inpatient unit and then you had your intensive outpatient, partial hospitalization, and halfway house components. And like I said, of all of these people, a lot of these people there were court ordered marchman acts. There was just a lot these people had a lot of legal issues going on. And you know, my role was really more working on the therapeutic ends. It's the last time I had done any therapy. But that was really kind of gave me that exposure to to that realm and learning to work with those types of individuals.
0: Right. That's uh, that's important. That's why oh. I, that's why I asked you because a lot of students right in and even ones that come through my practice want to know how to get started in this field. And a lot of times I'll point them to getting really good clinical experience working with offenders in various settings whether it's like at the treatment centers or the jails or hospitals like even community hospitals.
1: Absolutely. I think that for a student, if I just go back to where I was, you know, I worked in the Baker Act units, Baker Act here in Florida, in voluntary hospitalization. So I worked in the crisis stabilization units, mm-hmm. and that was probably you know some of the the best experience that I got. Especially if you're going to do forensics, I think if the, you know, I was also doing a lot of like psychometrician work for neuropsychologists, and so I think that you know, in the testing route. You know, working it, working with somebody that's doing a lot of assessment—that's good. But um, the crisis stabilization route is good because it's very general. You're going to get not just people in crisis, but you're going to get you're going to get some of that substance abuse crowd. You're going to get some of these people with the severe mental illness that you know may or may not have these legal issues. And so, I think just getting familiarized with that process of how people get to the hospitals. You know what the admission criteria is. Mm-hmm. How long they stay. What allows them to be stepped down. And um, you know what some of the psychotropic medication protocols are. I think that's all really good basic information that if you can you can start getting that at some point during graduate school, whether it's through practicum training, whether it's through you know a job on the side, that becomes valuable.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's the base of your and clinical I
1: yeah and one thing I just want to add to that is I think it gives you credibility when you are a licensed psychologist and you are the clinical director of that having that experience of really being kind of on the front line understanding you know what a case manager does, what the primary therapists do, what these assessors are kind of going through when they're seeing people you know in these intake offices at these facilities it, you, you want to be an effective supervisor. And really, you know, have the not just the, the credibility from your staff based on your credentials, but really on, you know, the work that you did to work your way up to that. It, it helps, it, it helps you understand what they're going through. And it, it also gives them some type of sense of relief that you are not just somebody with a degree that has your position because, you know, you're, you, you've got the credentials to do it. It's having the, having that experience, I think goes a long way.
0: Right. And, and the. Hospitals, like you mentioned, same thing out here in the hospitals or in the jails. I always tell students is another good place to get experience. You're going to see everything in the DSM there, with a com- with that with that legal component to it too.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Excellent. So we're here to talk today about insanity defense evaluations. But before we get into that, I want you to maybe overview the kind of training that one might need to get into doing these kind of evaluations before we actually get into the nitty gritty of the evaluations?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, you know, in forensics, and just in general, and I'll kind of speak in general, and then I'll put kind of my twist, you know, on it. But in general, then the evaluation is a common evaluation that you see a forensic psychologist do. It's really something that I would say it's it's not the first referral you're gonna get when you're newly licensed. I think that the way you get there is, you know, once assuming you're licensed and you're a psychologist and you're even in the running to be the kind of person that's gonna function as an expert witness on a sanity case, you're gonna get to know your circuit. In your, you know, your mental health and your substance abuse division within your, your, your circuit. So here in South Florida, I'm in, you know, Broward County specifically, where the, where the 17th circuit. And so, you know, we have our state attorneys, our public defenders, our mental health court, you know, and so on. And so what you do is once you're licensed, once you've completed our Florida forensic examiner training, what you can do is you can apply to be on what's called um, our expert witness panel for the circuit. And for the most part, I'm not uh, sure how it is in California, probably similar, this is but every similar. one of our 20 cir- yeah, what, every one of our 20 circuits here in Florida essentially have what's called, you know, their, their expert witness list for the most part. And these are people that you know have been reviewed and have been, you know that have and said that they you know meet the criteria to be you know an expert witness, and the majority of these cases that you're going to get to start off are going to be um, competency evaluations. Really, kind of a lot of the the basic evaluations that you're going to get, and then usually with that, with some time, assuming you stick with it, assuming you you know you do quality work, you you testified a number of times. What you'll start seeing is you'll start seeing public defender offices or more than likely starting with public defender offices, mm-hmm. eventually defense firms in the community. They'll start reaching out to you about your availability to do these evaluations. And, you know, what I would say is if you have the formal forensic training and you're, you've been on that path, you're going to be in pretty good shape. If you're like me and you're formally trained in neuropsychology. And you've really picked up forensic psychology as, you know, uh, you know, a subspecialty of what you're doing in neuropsych, Well, then you're going to be kind of, you're going to be, you're going to be doing some catch up through your CEUs, right. um, the assessment material that's out there, uh, reading the, you know, the, um, the primary books on criminal responsibilities, sanity, at the time of the offense, and then just getting yourself acclimated and acquainted with, you know, what the Florida law, what the, what the statutes are with regards to that. And so, It's really kind of a progression. I I don't know of a situation where somebody has just immediately started, you know, seeing sanity cases. Certainly, if you've done some type of formal training in one of your forensic or state hospitals, you're going to have a lot of exposure to that. I was lucky to be the program director for the forensic mental health programs here in Broward for five years. So I got to one of my roles was to oversee our case management forensic hospital program. I got, I got exposed to hundreds of sanity cases over the course of five years. And so when I kind of started making that part of my specialty in expert witness work, it's something that I was exposed to. I had seen in the hospitals. I had seen individuals in the community that were on conditional release. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, with that, you know, you start getting the calls. And it, like I said, I will probably start with a public defender's office, and then from there, you will, you know, start getting the private defense firms, and then eventually, you know, God willing, you watch your local news. You will start hearing things on the local <laughs> news, and you'll be like, "Uh oh, am I going to be getting a call? I'm going to be getting. Am I going to get contacted?
0: Uh, I identify with
1: that. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's you know, I, I think that that's probably along the lines of how forensic psychologists that are heavily involved in their circuits think. If something happens that is really out of the ordinary, horrific in some cases, you kind of start to think, hey, am I, am I one of the people kind of in the running, you know, to get the call on this case? And do I want Again, to be in the running? It, and you right, <laughs> right. And that's an important question you should be asking yourself. I, and what and honestly, in my experience was, I know a number of people that went through our forensic psychology concentration where I went to grad school. Can you tell that us where did you, where did you go to grad school? Nova Southeastern, oh, okay, right okay. here in Broward County. But I know a number of people that went through all the requirements and they decided that, you know, that was like enough forensics for them. They were They were good. They're now doing primarily clinical work. Some of them are doing assessment work. But they've stayed clear. They've stayed, for whatever reason, they've stayed clear of it. And then there's people like me that we, we just kind of got, you know, baptized by fire one way or another. I mean, I can say specifically that, you know, I was doing competency cases. I was doing my neuropsychology cases. And it just so happened that we had had a fairly big case going on in Broward that I needed a neuropsychologist. There was a, there was death sentence, you know, that was kind of you know in play, and they really needed somebody, and they knew me from my work, and they had you know brought me in, and you you really kind of go through you know the whole process, you know, at that point, yeah. you know where you where you're appointed, where you're you conduct a very long examination, you review hundreds of records, you turn over your records to the expert on the other side, you you sit through a very long deposition. And you know, before you know it, you know you're, you're in trial, and you know, assuming you can keep your composure, your your work was good. You know, typically that that won't open up a lot of opportunities for you. And but that was really the case with me. I had went from doing I had went from doing a lot of competency and overseeing this program to all of a sudden I was you know I was part of a fairly big a, a fairly big case that was going on down here. And,
0: just like you that I in, in the I've blink of an very eye very active
1: <laughs> yes I've stayed very active ever since i you know I um I like to do work with both sides I don't necessarily want anybody to to get the impression that you know I am um, I am more of a a, a defense leaning psychologist or a you know a state attorney you know leading psychologist I like to stay as true as I can to our training, which, you know, typically, you know, you, you you wanna be you wanna be neutral, but you want to kinda have your own expertise that you bring to it. With with me, people know that I'm you know, just from my neuropsychology training, there is going to be some elements into which I'm looking at those factors, whether it's the case I just mentioned or whether it's A sanity case, competency, these are just things that I feel comfortable accounting for. It it helps me feel that, you know, this is, you know, this is the type of expert witness I am. Mm -hmm. And this is what I, this is what I can contribute. And this is what I can account for um, on the cases that I do.
0: Well, Michael, you mentioned neutrality. So I'm going to jump around then with the neutrality piece. How do you assess for your bias or how do you evaluate your own bias when approaching these kinds of evaluations or any forensic evaluations for that matter?
1: Well, this is not a good answer, but I'm going to start with this. And I'm going to say that it's a workable answer. I think, I'm answer. Natu- I, think I'm, I think I'm naturally a person that that can line up, you know, pros and cons of both sides. Okay. I think that I I naturally live kind of in a world where there's a lot of gray and I accept the things around me as being very imperfect, very few things black and white, and that is that is kind of how I function and how I've learned to, you know, to get by for you know a very long time. And so I think that that's just kind of my general mindset. Now that being said, you know what would I be biased towards? I would be biased towards you know doing things that I thought that would be kind of outside of what I'm good at. Not even necessarily what I'm trained at because, you know, somebody like me, for example, you cannot be formally trained in forensics, but you can get the experience. You can do the training and you can get accepted to the board of forensic psychology to sit for the exam. Of course. Just like I did. So you can, you can take a non traditional route, but just to kind of get back to what you said about bias, I think that when I do my evaluations and what I look for in other people's evaluations, is I look for certain things being done. And if they're not being done, I look at that as, you know, why was it not done? And so whether it's a neuropsychology case, you know, whether I'm doing a neuropsychology case at a clinic, or whether it is, you know, a Sandy case or a risk assessment, I look at an individual's level of engagement across Really, three different realms, and I do this because I think it's you know it's the standard that I set, and I do this on every case, and I and I try to look at it the same for every case, and I think that that kind of keeps in the essence of just accounting for you know an individual's you know effort or responding, but then I also think it kind of like keeps me in check, like hey, these are things that I need to do because. It helps me answer these questions, and so it kind of prevents me from having, from just forming an opinion based on what I think is going on, you know, during the evaluation. Right. So I just to kind of like wrap that part up. I I have my behavioral observations that I do. I have my validity that I look at, which is typically done through just validity scales of a personality assessment, and then I have mine ongoing assessment of effort that I usually get from my neuropsychological testing that I do. And however comprehensive or or if I'm just doing like single measures, I try to factor that into everything I do so I'm always doing so that way, when I do get asked, you know, Am I biased or am I doing this or am I doing I can say like I'm staying true to what these standards are and what I think works and that I think everybody should should do.
0: So you're basing your opinions in the data and the science.
1: I mean, I think that...
0: That's what it sounds like, right? You know, to
1: to do it, I mean, yes, to a degree, yes. I think that, you know, we have data for a reason. I think that we should use it. I think as psychologists, you know, we need to pride ourselves on doing diagnostic testing. We, you know, we should not, and we should be able to explain that. In fact, when I talk to jury, that's how I describe psychological testing. Exactly. I don't get up there. And I say a personality test, a psychological test, a neuropsychological test. But I know only psychologists know what we're talking about. On the other hand, if I refer to these tests as diagnostic tests, everybody has, you know, a bill on their counter from, you know, diagnostic testing, you know, Quest Lab or wherever. And they, they understand that, you know, diagnostic testing is a process to which you are, you know, examining somebody for something specific to you know get results to determine if they have some type of condition or they don't have some type of condition. And so that's how I kind of simplified how I look at our assessment. And, you know, certainly your clinical interview is important. Certainly your collateral information is important. But I certainly the real time assessment of the data, coming up with something quantifiable that you don't necessarily get from the interviews that we conduct are very important. Something that I, again, no matter how small the evaluation, I try to have something that can be quantified that I can look at that kind of relates directly to whatever forensic issues are I'm trying to get resolved.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Same. I I agree. And I want to, we're going to jump around one more time before we get to the actual insanity stuff. You mentioned that Florida has a forensic examiner training that you have to take before you can apply to be on the panel in your circuits. Now, in Calif- right. in California, so the the difference that I notice. I mean, I'm not very familiar with Florida because I'm not licensed there yet, but I want to be. We talked about that on the prequel. My my dream one day is to move to Florida, and uh, in, 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 in my retirement years. <laughs> so people, people know my my listeners know I'm a big scuba diver, so I want to go out there to see the big animals. But anyways, California does not have a forensic examiner training per se. So in our circuit, or Like we do it by the county. If you're working federal cases, I think, actually I'm on the federal panel. We don't have a training for that either. So there's, to my to my knowledge, in our county and in our federal circuits, we don't have a forensic examiner training. You have to apply for the panel. And I don't, again, I don't know about other counties within California, but I know specifically in California, or geez, Los Angeles, because I'm on the panels in Los Angeles, it requires, you know, extensive training and, you know, you have to have mm-hmm. your doctorate degree and you sit in front of a panel of judges and they interview you. And then if they agree, you know, by majority that they want you on the panel, then they approve you to be on the panel. And it starts out the same way that you mentioned. You know, you start with okay. more competency cases, some mitigation cases. And, you know, if you have a designated specialty when you apply and it's listed on the on your panel sheet, then you'll get pulled for that. You know, like I do a lot of trauma work. Yeah. So, or substance abuse evaluations, you start there. And then, you know, like you said, as you go on and attorneys get to see your work, you testify, then you start getting the more significant cases or the heavier cases. So you'll get insanity down the road. It took me, I think about yeah. two and a half years before I got to that place. And then of course, you know, training on your own anywhere like, um, let's say, Concept or the American Academy of Forensic yeah. Psychology, great training. So
1: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if, you know, which one is necessarily, you know, the better way to go. You know, here in Florida, we have, you know, Dr. Rado, who has been doing the forensic examiner training now for decades, oh, I right, believe. Right. I went to both the adult and the adolescent, and I've got a chance to you know see him lecture both for our public defenders here in Broward and for I believe one of the state hospitals, and you know so that's something that has really kind of been his thing here that he has done, and he, he has really kind of served as you know a you know a, a resource and you know somebody that you know really has you know that's really you know aware of what's going on, what you should be doing, and, you know, and so on. And so, I, I mean, I can I can say, you know, on behalf of us here in Florida, that, you know, that's worked really well for us. But that's not to say that, you know, having a panel that's interviewing you and really picking your brain that that wouldn't be something that could be equally effective. That's just, not, that's just really kind of not the, the setup that we have here in Florida.
0: No, I know. I like the setup you have. I think that's amazing just that you have to go through that extra training to ensure that you have the skills and the competencies? Because you said you have to test afterwards, right? You have to take a test? No, it's
1: I'm just, a, it, no, it is just, oh. it's just the training. We have our, now we have the cases that we kind of work through throughout the course of the training, Okay, which really, I think, which I think kind of follows a similar format of a lot of the, the concept uh, trainings that you do to where you kind of get introduced to it. You maybe go through a lot of relevant cases and then mm-hmm. the tables kind of turn and you kind of start looking at the, you start looking at examples and coming up with your own opinions about you know, the specific issues, diagnoses, and so on. But we don't have like a test out at the end.
0: Okay. Yes. I agree. Concept does a great job with that. I went through that doing the HCR 20 training. I think I did mm-hmm. that in the insanity training. I think they did that too.
1: Yeah. The insanity training is, is excellent. I got a chance to do that I think like a year or two ago and I thought it was really worthwhile.
0: Maybe we were in the same training. I did it about a year ago too. I think I did it with uh, well I, Terry Kakor. Well I don't know if I'm I, saying his name right.
1: I, I'm trying to remember. I know that what I started doing was I had kind of made the conscious decision around the time that things were starting to shut down due to the due to the pandemic that I was gonna take whatever opportunity I had during our shutdown and things slowing down to really um, improve my own credentials and training so that when things really fully opened up, I would be able to vote so that I would be set up to do more expert witness work, less agency work. So I I think I did it probably like a little over a year ago, if I had to guess, something around there.
0: All right. Well, maybe we were, maybe we weren't. But I'm sure I'll see you in a future training.
1: Okay. <laughs> Absolutely inevitable.
0: Absolutely. Yes. I mean, forensics is such a small world. I mean, even though we're across the country, I mean, we're going to run into each other at some point. So online, probably in a training or Absolutely. at a conference. Absolutely. Hey, by the way, are you going to the first, I forget what they're calling it, but the first meeting, annual meeting of the American Academy of Forensic Psychology? In, I think it's in September. Gosh, is, that the
1: word, is that New Orleans?
0: See, I was just about to say that part too. It's in it's in Louisiana. Yes.
1: You know, that's uh, I, I'll have to kind of take a look at what my schedule is. I usually base my travel on two different things. Number one, you know, is there a case there that I'm being hired for where I'm going to, you know, get to go do my thing, and then of number course. two is is this a venue that mrs collins would like to travel to i like
0: that you know, I, I like that well, a lot I, well,
1: <laughs> so while i'm you know doing my thing she gets to do her exploring and so that's how my travel schedule kind of works out usually those are like the two things the those are the two things because you know when you, i i work a lot i'm um i work i serve as an expert on several circuits here in florida so i do a You're lot busy. of traveling Yeah, I am. And I have two little kids. And what I like to do, like what we're going to be doing at the end of this week, I'm doing two cases up in Panama City. And so I'm going to do my cases on Friday, but I'm bringing them with me. And then Saturday, we're going to do like like a big water park there. And then Sunday is going to be primarily driving. But I think that that, that's a way that I kind of we have not gotten to the work life balance, stress management component yet. Okay. Of, you know the, <laughs> the podcast, but that is that's a whole how other episode. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: that's how I build it in because I, I I tend to get very very into it and really take on a lot. And but at the same time, too, you know, I have little kids, and you know that that are just a lot of fun and, and, and so on. And so I want to make sure I'm you know, I'm at games and events at school and doing homework and doing all that stuff too. So I, I find ways to kind of like be present, you know, but then also get to go do all my cases that I like to do. So
0: definitely. Yeah. We're all, I think I can speak for a lot of my colleagues out here because we're kind of in a similar boat. So we'll, we'll definitely cover a work-life balance episode soon. Okay. <laughs> 30 minutes into our episode. Here we go. Let's talk about the Insanity Defense. So tell me or tell the listeners, Michael, what is the Insanity Defense?
1: Well, we spent a little bit of time talking about competency and competency where we're looking at the here and now. With sanity, we're actually going back in time and we want to be able to capture state of mind um, at the time that, you know, the offense was taking place. So it's very possible when you're asked to do a sanity defense that you're, you know, you're looking at this pages of these allegations and this arrest report and these absolutely um you know things that you cannot make up that are going on. But, you know, by the time you interview them, there's a good chance that they've they've been in jail, they've been in the hospital for a while and they're completely competent and they've kind of they've been stabilized, they've been treated. And so you, you may run into that where, you know, by the time you see them, they, they seem pretty rational and they seem to have a pretty good idea of what's going on right now. But as your job as a forensic psychologist that's examining sanity. You're going back in time. And you're using the best information you can get to draw some type of an opinion about did this person, and this is Florida language, mm-hmm. suffer from a mental infirmity at the time of the offense? And there's there's really a handful of ways that you do that. I think I just kind of want to start off by taking a look at what are the aspects that that we're digging into here. And on one hand, we kind of have more of that neurocognitive, what we call arm of the defense, where was there some type of cognitive issue that was taking place that was causing this infirmity at the time of the offense? Mm -hmm. Or was it more of the uh, volitional prong? where there could be something more along the lines of a severe persistent mental illness, a psychotic episode, some type of maybe blacking out as part of maybe, you know, a, a post-traumatic stress disorder, a bipolar disorder, something like that. So those are really the two areas you're kind of looking to and you're going at when you're going to be doing these types of evaluations. First, you're going to examine both. So you're going to do a battery of cognitive testing, and then you're also going to go through and do your um, assessment for any mental health issues. Mm-hmm. But then you're really kind of trying to take a look at which one of these or both or neither seems to account for, you know, what the deficit was at the time that the offense took quite.
0: Right. So you're it's a retrospective type of evaluation. I mean, you're interviewing the defendant, but you're... Basing that that opinion is going to be based on their mental state at the time of the crime. Whereas, like you mentioned earlier, competency is based on their mental state at the time of the evaluation. So insanity, we're looking right. backwards.
1: Yeah. And so we're looking at did they know what they were doing or what the consequences were or did the person or, you know, did the defendant know, you know, what if what they were doing, if it was wrong or not. So understand the penalty. But then also, did they understand what was wrong, what was going on, you know, at the time of the offense?
0: Right. And in California, we have, you know, it's similar language, maybe slightly, it's written slightly different. We, the legal definition of insanity here, we use the McNaughton test and, uh, okay, yeah. So, I mean, basically a person can be considered legally insane if, because of a mental defect. So, you know, words difference, but mental defect or mental illness, because, Mm -hmm. you know, he or she is either can't understand the nature of their criminal act or they can't distinguish between right or wrong so
1: yeah similar. And, I, and then yeah yeah and one last thing too the burden of proof you know really relies on the defense being able to to prove this because all people are assumed to be sane at the time of the offense unless they can prove one of these you know more cognitive or volitional factors to, to be present um, at the time that would account for you know the behavior and what's going on or what had happened.
0: Right. And so how would one decide whether or not, in, like an evaluator, right? How would you decide, how would you approach such an evaluation to determine whether or not that person at that time suffered from a severe mental illness or a neurocognitive deficit or some sort of brain dysfunction that, cause them to not know right from wrong? Like, how would you approach that? Can we kind of open that up a little bit?
1: Yeah, I, I'll give you the best example I've had and I will give you the worst example that I, I've I like had. like Good. <laughs> and and then just understand that the majority are somewhere in between the two. But I think that, you know, there's, um, the best example I've ever had was an example where there was actual like video taken of the erect of the individual. And the video of the arrest was very compelling to say the least. And, you know, there was there was even a little bit of like humor kind of thrown in there in that one of the people, the offense happened at like eight or nine o'clock in the morning. And after they had arrested the individual, they had interviewed somebody that was, that knew the individual that, w- that was staying with them. They had like a relationship and the person clearly did not feel comfortable being interviewed, you know, by the police, you know, at that time, but because uh, this person knew the person, they they wanted, you know, their insight. And the person kind of mentioned, like, even when this person is not doing drugs, there are things that are severely wrong with the individual. And And so I think that, you know, really kind of having, you know, that type of footage of both the arrest, taking the person into custody, just their behavior, their demeanor, how they were acting, what they were saying. Mm And it attracted like a big spectacle, kind of like in the neighborhood. Again, it happened really early in the morning. It was like a break-in of the house. And a lot of individuals really um, were in the area and they were able to comment on it. And you got a lot of good insight because, again, so much of this is us trying to figure out, you know, what was going through this person's mind when this happened. Well, this was an example where you not only got to see the person, you know, being arrested, but you also got to hear from like so many people that could like give like an eyewitness, you know, testimony of what right. had happened, you know, at the time. And I could say that that's probably one of the best examples I've had about just collateral information that was given to me that I could use, you know, when I was kind of drawing my opinion about sanity, because I had already interviewed this person, I had already tested this person on, I think, two or three different occasions, and then I was able to get access to all of this stuff that had happened, you know, at the time that they had video of, that was, you know, really kind of undeniable in terms of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so it really, it really helped me bolster, you know, me kind of going down the road of, you know, is this this is going to be a case that's going to be appropriate. Is this going to really kind of if the is this going to really rise to the level of being a sanity case or not? So I, I I think that having the opportunity to see them multiple times, if you can, I found in most of my forensic cases, the more you're able to have contact with the person, the more you're going to really kind of like learn things about, about them, about their demeanor and and so on. But then again, the collateral information and I was able to also interview um, some people that had known the person previously. And for the most part, there was a consistency in terms of what they had reported to me when I interviewed them in jail, what I was able to see through video, and then also what other people had said. And so I wasn't having to I wasn't having to reconcile a lot of the information. I wasn't having to explain why. I had this, I had these results, but then I also had these results, and then I also mm-hmm. had these results. And I was constantly having to account for inconsistencies that would bring into question, you know, is this really a case that rises? If, if there's this many questions, is, is it really, yes, um, exactly, does it really rise to the level or not? So that was probably the best example I had. And the worst example I had was I was actually asked to come in and do a sanity case on a case that was very old. Mm-hmm. I want to say it was decades old where there was literally, I was reading like court notes that were like written on oh, wow. paper from the now, trial. Why,
0: why would they retain you so late in the game or why, why would they need someone so, so much later? <laughs> what happened?
1: Very, very smart uh, defendant. Oh. And a Please very share. smart person. I, I think they did a lot of I think they did a lot of self-study over their years being incarcerated. I think that they started to learn about the sanity defense and prep themselves for what the process would be and how you would present a certain way and how you would say certain things and how you would say that you blacked out didn't remember things. This person was not born in the country. They spoke perfect English when I saw them, but they they had said that they had, you know, really learned English by, you know, being in the prison system for so long. And so, you know, that was, you know, the other piece of it, as I really think that, I really think that the defendant kind of like, uh, really kind of talked an attorney into, you know, kind of going down their path of pursuing sanity. And I don't know, you know, how... Bit of a chance they necessarily thought they had going into it, but you know, that, I, I can pretty, definitely
0: say that it's pretty sophisticated,
1: yeah. So, what, yeah, um, what, no, what com- you, no cognitive issues with that one. <laughs>
0: so, so what, what about malingering? I, I just did an episode on malingering with a, another expert. Well, did, did you do yeah, any? Um, uh, I'm sure you did being a neuropsych. I mean, you know, we did, yeah, I,
1: I did, you know, I actually, what I did was, I actually have some pretty good hot off the press and MPI-3 data on that case that I did with that one. And, you know, needless to say, there were a lot of alarm bells that really went off. Not just concerns that I had uh, during, you know, the interview. I think I interviewed this person four times. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of kept going back and, you know, seeing the person and, you know, and so on. But yeah, they there was a lot of validity issues at the end of the day, and yeah. between the inconsistencies of the report, between the lack of collateral information, between me working with invalid assessments, it was just there really wasn't there. was, Let's just say there. We we certainly did not rise to the standard. I can say that.
0: Okay, so the testing data confirmed the interview data, or was consistent with the interview data. It sounds like then
1: it was. I mean, I think that the or person, your
0: opinions, your your forensic opinions, yeah, pretty
1: yeah. Uh, Smart person, but you know it's it's very hard to you know manufacture you know a defense if it's not there. In my opinion, I, I that's how I felt in this case. I felt there was not a lot there, and I thought that it was pretty clear early on. No, needless to say, I went through my procedures. I I went through the process. I did not cut anything short by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I um, I really did my best to investigate, you know, every angle of this before I came to any opinion on it.
0: Absolutely. And how long do you usually spend in your with your evaluations? With these kinds, with the insanity evaluations. You know,
1: there is there is really no answer for that. I would say for evaluations and custody, my appointments are generally somewhere in the area of two to three hours. And let me tell you, that is purely logistics because Mm -hmm. it can take me up to an hour from the time I enter the jail to actually get in front of the defendant. Right. And typically, there are lockdowns in the facilities at certain times. And so you're really, in most of the facilities that I go to anyway, you're really kind of limited. So, you know, if this is an evaluation where, you know, I'm going to have to see them multiple times well, it's it's probably going to be... And it's going to be comprehensive. Well, then there's going to be a series of these appointments that are going to probably last somewhere in the neighborhood of two hours until I get through everything that I need to do. You know, usually my interview process is usually ongoing. Like I kind of go through, I do my initial interview. And if I have time left, I start testing. I start going back through information. and I start coming up with more questions. Mm -hmm. And so there's always some interview component probably to most of my um, assessments just because I'm constantly clearing up information and getting clarification right. on what's going on.
0: Right. Same. I'm, I'm usually booking out at least two to three visits on one of those cases. And same like two to three yeah. hours. I mean I plan for four in LA same same issues with lockdowns and you know just other programming issues so we're actually booked on four four hour blocks. On a good day I'll get in and out in two hours because I'll get right in and right out, but not always. So,
1: Yeah. I mean, if you think that, let's just say you're going to start the interview process, get an hour in and you're going to, you know, kind of switch and do start one of the personality assessments or you're going to try to do an IQ assessment, you know, you're looking probably somewhere around that hour mark to get through any one of those.
0: Right. And so let's move into the testing then since we're kind of going that direction anyways. Tell us why we would need to do or why one would consider doing any kind of psychological testing, whether it's uh, personality testing or, you know, like you mentioned, IQ testing or any other neuropsych measures. Why would we consider testing in well, this kind of evaluation?
1: Well, we want to jump back to biases in a second. I mean, this is where, you know, if you're a neuropsychologist, you, you know, you really, it's really more how do you feel that you can function without doing testing? I think that that's something that if you're a neuropsychologist,
0: you you probably
1: have, yeah, well, you probably (laughs) have, you really kind of have it built into you to, hey, let's say I'm going to take, you know, the waste and I'm going to start breaking that down into looking at different cognitive domains, for example. So that would be something that would be effective when you're really looking at this whole element of the cognitive factors that could, um, you know, that could be causing, you know, sanity at the time of the offense. And so that's where something like... Like memory. The waste right? measures of executive functioning. Right. Um, yeah. The, you know, a memory test, for example, where that would be, you know, beneficial. If you think that you're, if you're working with somebody, let's say that has, you know, a high school education, a history of, you know, working history, they have, you know, fluent language skills, you know, coherent speech you may just opt to do some screenings, you know, mm-hmm. with regards to pre-morbid functioning, cognitive status, maybe, or maybe um, you know, something where you can get at executive functioning. If you think that there's some type of impulse control or frustration tolerance issue that, you know, could have contributed to what's going on, you know, that might be, you might kind of lean more on that direction if you're investing in the cognitive factors. So that would be, and, I, and that would be something that would really kind of be entirely based on you know what's appropriate you know to do for this person. I've done sandy cases of very high high level functioning people that have above average IQs, and I've also done it you know on the on the other part where I was working with. People that run more in that intellectually disabled range. Mm-hmm. Now, if I have somebody that there's really no reason to believe there's an intellectual disability, in fact, their intelligence is you know fully intact within the average range. I'm probably better off spending more time investigating more psychiatric, mental health related issues. You know, maybe instead of taking that extra time to do the waste, maybe I'm better served if this person has trauma history to be doing. You know, a, a a personality assessment, in addition to some type of trauma assessment, maybe you know, dedicating more time there right. to account for a possibility of a stress disorder. Maybe that's better use of my time instead of making sure I've given you know all ten subtests of the weight on a person that, for the most part, there's no reason for me to believe they they don't have average intelligence, and I'm not really even that concerned about cognition being the factor that I really need to get a hold of here in this evaluation. Because you do have to, you know, with just the access to jails. Now, we're opening up pretty good here in South Florida. I'm not sure where you guys are at. We never... You know, over there in our, our
0: jails but, never closed. Well... To the outside but providers. Guys, but, <laughs>
1: okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that's great. I mean, we, we had significant issues. We got into this, you know, we got into these situations where, you know, we're being strongly encouraged to do things over teleconference.
0: Oh, which, yeah. That, of course. Know, yes.
1: Which... Which, you know, I can only imagine, you know, what's gonna happen, you know, with some of those evaluations down the road. So, you know, for the most part it was just about, you know, how am I best using my time to assess with these issues. And let's, you know, I've done a number of sanity cases where post traumatic stress disorder was an issue and it was something that was very necessary for me to to really dig into. I wouldn't necessarily say that that is part of a common sanity evaluation that I do. But for, you know, the unusual circumstances of, you know, these cases that I've done, like, not investigating trauma would have left, like, a glaring hole in the evaluation of factors that I did not account for that, you know, may or may not bring, that may or may not, you know, rise to the standard of of sanity.
0: Right. Yeah, you have to look at the factors that are at play. So if someone's floridly psychotic, I mean, you're not going to give necessarily a whole neuropsych battery, but you're going to want to give, yeah. you want to pay attention to your interviews and maybe some yeah. personality testing, you know, maybe I'm a malingering screener, kind of like the MFAST or Absolutely. something. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, you're going to yeah. look at what's, what's in play in front of you. I always so, like to bring uh, uh, up the testing say, issue yeah, for just, students that are like, well, how do, you know, they're going through school and they're learning the ways and the whims and they're like, do I give this? And, you know, there's all the pre-questions. So I just uh-huh. like to put it out there.
1: Yeah, no, and I mean, I think for when I'm doing my competency evaluation, very frequently I'll do the MFAP. When I'm doing sanity cases, generally, if I'm going to be going down the, the symptom of validity, if I'm going down that route, I'm probably going to be using, you know, something more in line with like the SIRS for that type of an assessment, that usually becomes one of the assessments that I'll go to, and the only reason why is because you know the 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 series is this long, comprehensive questionnaire for sanity cases. I, I'll tend to go, I'll, I'll I'll tend to go the more longer, comprehensive route as opposed to the screening route, unless you know, unless maybe it was a case where the cognition was more the issue, and my time needed to be more spent you know, determining if this person has some type of intellectual disability or let's say they're older and they have, say, frontal temporal dementia and I not only have to examine for dementia, but I also have to look at these frontal lobe issues that require specific testing, then, you know, maybe I I would be able to get away with doing more screening on the psychiatric end and going a little bit deeper on the, um, the neurocognitive end.
0: Yeah, you're right. You're right. When I'm thinking about it, I'm I was combining two different cases I was working But yes, I agree. Using the SERS is way more comprehensive. And if it is a psychotic disorder or psychiatric disorder, you definitely want to use something more comprehensive. Well, yeah, I mean, for us,
1: we have to play the tape all the way through and we can't just do what we intend to do in the moment. We have to look forward to explaining it to the attorney that hired us, to possibly Mm -hmm. sitting through a deposition, to possibly sitting through a trial. And you need to make sure that you tried to maximize. You know, everything you've done and not done a screening measure where, you know, clearly there was a deeper issue that needed to be examined. That the manual of the screening measure is going to specifically tell you hey, if there's red flags, you know, yep. divert course into something more comprehensive.
0: Right. Which is the language in the MFAST.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Awesome. So we talked a little bit about testing and why it would be utilized or needed in these kind of evaluations talked about lingering touched on that what else do you think is important in these evaluations to know kind of like just a broad overview again nothing too in-depth but someone starting out doing these evaluations what's something else that's important to know here did we miss anything i mean we talked there i, are...
1: I mean i i think that with, if you're interviewing skills you you just really need the repetition. And you just really need to learn how to craft your interviews to get to the questions that you need, you know, answers to. One thing that I would say, not part of any graduate programs that I know of, but really learning how to read these court documents that just get sent to you in a flurry, the arrest reports, you know, understanding, you know, what the charges are, just, you know, basic technicalities of going through these cases and understanding like, you know, what the officers kind of put together when they did the arrest, you know, what information, you know, maybe the state attorney relied on when they decide to, to, um, you know, move forward with charges. Was there like an acute hospitalization, you know, that took place immediately after, Mm -hmm. was there any resistance to, you know, medication treatment? You know, I just think that being able to go through your documents and understand them in a chronological order, in terms of how into what, you know, you're seeing during the interview, and then also how that would be contribute to some of your data, how it might help shape some of the questions that you're going to ask, whoever the people are that you get collateral information from. You know, so I think that looking at that's important. And I think it helps you really tailor your line of questioning, both for the examinee, but also for the people that you're going to question in relation to the.
0: Yes, I agree. I can't remember where I heard this from. It was just the other day, but somebody mentioned it might have been on a, I don't think it was on TV because I don't really watch TV that often, but it was somewhere. Maybe it was on a podcast. Maybe it was on Jeremy's podcast, the other, the testing psychologist podcast. I can't remember where I heard it from, but somebody said, a psychologist, an evaluator said that they have trained people that work for them. Or maybe I read it in the comments in that in the Facebook group, but they trained their interns or their psych assistants to organize records when they come in in chronological order and take notes that way and build a timeline and it's much easier mm-hmm. right for them to develop their questions as they go into said interview it wasn't for an insanity case it was for, for some other i think it was for a forensic case but i don't think it was insanity specifically so i actually okay. i actually do that too i have a giant whiteboard in my office and one day I, I want to be able to do it on my laptop, but I like to see things. I don't know why, just in larger print and I can make a really big timeline on my whiteboard. Mm-hmm. And I start to organize information that way, of course, after I've organized the documents, but I, I draw the timeline out and then I take photos of it on my iPhone and I print that out and I keep it as okay. part, of, part of the record. So that's just kind of one of my ways. I know some of my colleagues do it on the computer. I just like to see it like in... the in real time when I've got documents everywhere on my conference table and I'm like taking notes okay. and writing my questions out or kind of coming up with some analysis if I'm reviewing data. So that's kind of how I do it. I don't I don't know if you have like a crazy madness to your way of developing the, the timeline or organizing data, but that's kind of how I that's how that's how I approach my timeline I, I,
1: do, <laughs> I do not, but I will tell you just to kind of bounce back to, you know, our opening here Usually, when I am in the midst of like a record review and I may be kind of starting the report process, I will definitely ask myself, how in the world did I start neuropsychology and end up, you know, in this place that I'm in right now? Because this is just, this in itself is insanity. Just going through this and trying to organize it and keep it all straight. So when I have my reckonings about, you know, getting into forensics and why and how, I can tell you that I am definitely, I definitely, I stare that down quite a bit, uh, very often. So, probably almost on a monthly basis, I'm like, why am I not in the hospital doing evaluations for people with head injuries or dementia or, or whatnot? How, how am I doing this case right now? So, that, You're that, not that, alone. that's usually like, yeah, those <laughs> are like the limits that get tested for me when I'm going through it because you are typically overwhelmed with information. And trying to organize it, streamline it, make sense of it, answer the questions, you know, come up with an opinion that can be, you know, supported, vetted, criticized, come out on the other end and still, you know, really like stand up to, you know, the customer the criticism. I think that that's something that, you know, is extremely important and, you know, something that I know I put a lot of time and a lot of thinking into.
0: Yes. Trying to prove yourself wrong.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. it's It's insanity. Guys, it's insanity. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate you giving us some time. It's been our hour, and I, I don't want to waste any more of your time or uh, keep you longer because I know Mrs. Collins is probably waiting for you. And so, as, <laughs> as we close, because Mr. Vienna is waiting for me. <laughs> so, as we close, <laughs> as we come to a close, I always ask my guests to provide one piece of advice that you would give to a new psychology student, grad student or early career psychologist going into forensic work, like what's one piece of advice you would give them? It could be about doing these kind of evaluations or just about grad school in general or experience. It could be anything. What's one piece of advice?
1: I guess, you know, I'll, I, I try to like craft, you know, my own experience and I kind of try to have some of it like rub off on my students, you know, along the way. I've had students that have had easier paths. I've had students that have had harder paths. I think that my path was was, it was I I didn't have people in my family that were psychologists or that did forensic work, you know, for that matter. And so I think that it may be easier to find reasons like to to quit or to to not do it or to, you know, kind of say, you know, it's it's too hard. And I think it's just important that you really kind of find a mentor that's really willing to kind of share what their experience was and kind of how to get through, you know, the hard parts, whether it's just how to get into graduate school. You know, what kind of grades do I have to get? What kind of GRE scores? What kind of program should I get into? Or when you kind of start running into some adversity, you know, maybe you fail a competency evaluation, like a clinical competency evaluation in your program, or you struggle with the E triple P. I think that it's just really important that, you know, when you're on this level and you're really competing with very, very small percentage of the population, that you don't take the experience for granted. You Staying the course if it's something that you know you really want to do, because there will be many times in your career that you'll want to quit. You'll think it's too hard. I will never forget. I um I was doing a civil case a few years ago, and I ended up having to go up against my mentor from oh, graduate wow. school who like taught me who taught me everything I knew, and here I am. I'm like five or six years in. Going against this guy that has a bookshelf of his own book. And I'm like, Am I, am, this is this it? Am I just completely you're, like done?
0: You're, done? you're gonna be done. And, and, <laughs> and, and <laughs> That's the me. thought. That's the thought that's in the head. Yeah.
1: And, you know, but you just kind of, you, you kind of start just, you should have enough built in reminders to kind of remind yourself that you like belong here and that you, you know, you got here for a reason. And you will absolutely, if you're like really meant to do this, you will absolutely regret if you, you, you know, decide not to do it. And that regret of not doing it will be far worse than whatever the temporary pain is. And I will never forget the temporary pain I felt when I saw, please disclose all your records to Dr. So-and-so. I'm like, Oh my gosh. You know, it's literally like the person that taught me everything I knew. Now luckily they taught me well enough. (laughs) Yeah. Luckily they taught me well enough that, you know, we it, we ended up for the most part, you know, agreeing on conclusions and everything, and so it was very validating. But you have to go through those really really tough patches, and again, whether it's getting into grad school, you know, getting the grades, getting the GRE, getting the letters of recommendation, whether it's you know whatever trials and tribulations you have in grad school or whatever you passing know, your dissertation
0: defense, right. Dissertation defense. Yes. You got through yes, that?
1: Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, my, yeah, and that was yeah, shared by my mentor. So it was it was so just, you know, I think that there's gonna be a lot of times where it will be very easy and very justifiable to just say it is too hard. And I think that learning to take the criticism, learning to dust yourself off, pull yourself back up, get back out there. I think it's just really critical to, you know, both your personal growth, your professional development, but also think about it. You're gonna be on the stand one day in a trial, enduring a very tough cross examination. Very true. And it's gonna literally it's gonna be those one thousand bumps and bruises that you took that's going to land you in that spot, testifying in a high profile case, you know, living out the exact dream you had in your head when you were, you know, 21 years old, you decided that you were going to go down that path. And so you have to just, you have to remember that, that these bumps and these bruises, you know, they're cumulative. They, they certainly take your toll. But I mean, coming out the other side of that and being able to then share that with like the next person, you know, being able to say, hey, listen, this is what I had to go through and I did it and I'm glad I did it. And if I can do it, you can definitely do it. Being able to share, you know, those moments with your students as they're getting ready to start, really ramping up, and start getting their career off the ground, you let them know that you know there's there's very humanizing and dehumanizing uh, obstacles that you know you get to, and you you just have to learn to deal with that that you know the criticism, the, the disappointment, sense of failure. And you're functioning at a very high level, you know, in in your career. And it's certainly not meant for everybody to do. So if you're on the track and you have the opportunity to do it, you know it's what you want to do. Just make sure whatever the obstacle is, whatever test you fail, whatever attorney, you know, just, you know, breaks you down to your lowest common yep. denominator, mm-hmm. just make sure that that is going to be nothing more than, you know, that psychobio test that you took your first semester in graduate school that you that you failed, that you had to, you know, get back into the books and study and so you could just survive an advance. So that is my long answer, but I think, you I know, like uh, you know the moral of the story is you're going to be in a situation where, in, in a way, you're envisioning all this happening and you coming out on the other side and succeeding. But there are going to be a lot of bumps and bruises that you got to be you got to be willing to take. And you got to have that internal fortitude to persevere to get through it and to make sure that this is not, you know, the end of the dream. This is just one more thing you're going through.
0: Yeah, And it's a learning experience.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Well, I love it. I I like that advice. I think the listeners and the students are going to really appreciate that. And I know I definitely do. So with that. I'm gonna let you go, and hopefully we see you back for maybe another episode on another topic.
1: Hey, you know it was a pleasure. I'm glad that we connected and I got a chance to do this. Thinking a little bit that you know me, you know that I've got at least another episode in me, and so I'm I'm more than happy to you know to help you out here down the road. And you know, thank you a lot for just bringing me on here and getting a chance to you know tell your listeners here a little bit about what I do.
0: Absolutely, thanks, Michael. The Forensic Psychologist Podcast is a project of Vienna Psychological Group. If you like this show, please consider leaving us a review and five stars. It helps get the word out to students and early career psychologists looking to get into the field of forensic psychology. You can find all the resources mentioned in the show notes below. And make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at Dr. Nicole Vienna. I'll be back in about two weeks with another awesome episode.